Welcome to both Success and Integrity with Bessie Graham, a podcast dedicated to established business leaders like you, ready to bring more meaning into your life in a way that strengthens rather than threatens the financial stability of your business. I'm your host, Bessie Graham. I've worked with business owners, governments, and large funding bodies like the United Nations for over 20 years to bring doing good and making money back together. So let's unpack why you don't have to choose between experiencing success or having integrity in your life. In episode 20, we spoke with Nikkei Anani about the global role of family businesses, and she gave us some insight as the voice of the next gen, speaking to the opportunities and challenges that she saw as a global advisor to family businesses. So today, I thought we'd jump back in to the wonderful world of family business, and to help us navigate, I've invited Dominic Pelagana, founding partner of Lineage Group. He has over 25 years' experience working exclusively with large private and family-owned businesses and family offices across numerous sectors. Dom is a trusted advisor to some of Australia's largest and most successful business families and holds more than 10 positions. I was a bit impressed when I read that, Dom. (laughs) 10 positions on uh, business, family and shareholder boards, as well as multiple roles with charitable entities. So thank you so much for joining me today, Dom. Pleasure. Thank you for asking me to come along. I'm wondering if we we jump straight in. There's obviously a a growing conversation and acknowledgement around the role of family businesses, but you have a particular take that I find fascinating around making a distinction between a family business and a business family. And I would love for you to start us off by really just pulling apart what is the difference and and how would you think about those two kind of concepts? Great question. Thank you. Uh, so something we've been thinking about for a long time. So to us, a family business is where one family is orientated around a business. So it's typically around the first and second generation where the family's there to serve the business. The distinction is a business family where we go from the second to the third generation where the emphasis is on the family and not the business. So typically first gen, uh, the family's there to serve the business and often the family lives nearby uh, the business. The second gen comes along uh, and has mum or dad's uh, passion as their legacy uh, but they want a bit of balance. They saw how hard the first generation work. So they, they seek to balance this thing around family and business. And sometimes that's hard for the first gen to see. But by the time the second gen starts to transition to the third gen, um, the third gen is saying this was um, grandma or grandpa's love and passion and legacy, not necessarily ours, but the family is good at business. So that's how we transition from a family serving one business to a business family where we say, okay, we're a family, but we're really good at business. So how do we accommodate different interests and different passions and have more than one business? So it's really a maturity thing that starts to click in around the second or third generation. Does it have to have scale as well, or is it? could you still transition to being 
a business family but only have one business? Love it. It's a mindset. Okay. It's, it's a mindset. It's rather than saying we all have to fit this one business because often families grow faster than businesses. So people get crowded out or left behind or there's unnecessary tension and competition where it's a mindset to say, well, we don't have to be that big, but how do we help the next gen get into a business? Uh, we have an agricultural client in Queensland where uh, it's a strong business vertically integrated and they'll help the third gen start their own businesses that they're passionate about if it can serve the business, whether it's transport or logistics, but just to get them going. So nice. and then they can yep. they, they can grow from kind there. of the first client. <laughs> Absolutely, and, but again, it's at that it's that mindset that we, yes, we're a family and we're good at business. So let's help. Let's help start another business. Are there particular uh, either personality types or generations mm. that struggle more with that? Because I, you know, you were describing some of those changes that happen, and I would imagine it's pretty difficult if you have started something from scratch and you have a certain kind of work ethic probably a certain kind of personality yeah. and then different people start to to come into the mix over time is that a a thing or am i oh, that's absolutely and you, you might have picked up on my body language it's really funny because um to be a founder of a business um you're a different sort of person um you don't like to conform you want to create your own destiny you're action orientated and you're a risk taker um often that can't be taught and despite what the first gen think, it's not genetic, right? So it's more of a personality trait. And the second gen come along and they're more akin to professional managers, whereas a founder was the entrepreneurial risk taker. The next gen are saying, okay, we're not mum or not dad, let's find a space in the business. And they usually join the business as it starts to grow and need systems and processes. So you attract systems and process people. They're not risk takers. They're not always entrepreneurs, but you might get a second gen or a third gen who is very much like the founder. And it can go remarkably well and they grow the business or it can create a massive tension like having two bulls in the paddock. Yeah, I can imagine. So it, it, it's, it's very interesting. And we, we're working with one client at the moment, very strong, successful founder, uh, and his son who came in the business is very much like him dad but in order to keep the relationship alive it was agreed that son should go and start his own business and dad helped uh, rather than having this gridlock or this tension in the business it's that interesting piece because you're right in that example it could be equally as challenging if you had the same kind of personality because is there room for two cooks in the kitchen you know like the Absolutely. all of those different tensions i can imagine would would come out and and be at play so yeah, it, it could be messy, I would imagine, around um, how that plays out. And just the dynamics of it's already tricky. I've certainly, in the businesses I've founded, been in that position where, you know, I like kicking the doors open, starting new things. And then when people are trying to get you to be more structured and ordered and have a CRM and you push against it because it, it just doesn't feel natural. If you then added in that it was my child telling me to do that, that'd be tricky. <laughs> oh, and that, that, that is the natural tension between first gen and second gen. You've described it perfectly. First gen being an entrepreneur um, works hard, doesn't, like, um, doesn't want to bureaucratise or overmanage the business. It's only going to get in the way. It's going to slow me down. It's just an overhead I don't need. Come on, get on with it. But typically, 
the business needs that as their children come in. So A, they're resisting because they're entrepreneurs, but B, they don't hear it from the kids, right? So that's, that's one of those normal and predictable challenges that we talk about in family businesses and business families. Yeah, that's great. What was the sort of impetus or why did Lineage come into being? What was it that you were seeing as a gap or particular support that these types of business families needed that wasn't being covered? Uh, so myself and my founding partner both grew up in family businesses. We, we grew up in a family business, separate ones. And then we you know, did a um, commerce degrees and became you know, accountants and tax accountants. Um, we both found ourselves at a big global firm um, and still had the, the passion and the desire um, to serve um, family businesses and business families. Uh, when I left my previous um, firm, I was the national leader for family business and also the ASPAC leader and sat on some global um, boards around that, which is all exciting and interesting. But what we preach to our clients is you need to have a strategy the structure is to support that strategy, and then you focus on operations. And sometimes in large, complex professional services firms, you can have the strategy, but the structure prohibits that to be implemented. So one was our passion uh, for this space, and we genuinely believe, um, or passionately believe, that the family business model is the optimum business model with an asterisk, and the ast I'll come to the asterisk. And we thought we could go further and faster and serve our clients and the market better outside of the structure of a global professional services firm. And the, I mean, it's interesting because even within that big structure, you had a deep history and track record within yeah. these types of businesses. So if someone was listening and they were saying, I have a business, it's established, yes, some of my kids are in it, but I don't really even consider myself a family business, let alone like we're just a business, what's with needing to differentiate? What is the, the differences or the distinctions that you see between people who are thinking about themselves in either of those categories as a family business or a business family compared to any other, you know, privately held business out there? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we create lineage to serve um, maturing entrepreneurs business families, and family offices. So what you've just described to us is a maturing entrepreneur, that they're very passionate about business. And um, it's quite funny, with, um, with entrepreneurs, it's typically um, if I die, not when I die. Um, but <laughs> it's really around. Um, um, so the mindset, really, that, that trigger is um, thinking about the business long term and think they don't want to sell. Uh, and they want to keep the business going and growing, uh, and they're naturally drawn to bring in their children in to provide them with opportunities and to serve um, to serve the business. So it's really it's really a mindset where uh, the views extend beyond their ownership, where they can see it benefiting the family for a long period. And often when we work with families, Bessie, we ask uh, two simple questions: one. How's the business better off by being owned by the family? And two, how's the family better off by owning this business together? And depending on the answer to those questions, will determine whether that maturing entrepreneur can see a pathway going forward and bringing the next gen in. And are there, if you think generationally speaking, when does the the transition tend to happen? So you've you've 
pulled out these different categories that that you're focusing on. Are there patterns that are pretty predictable that you see with those transitions happening? Yeah, absolutely. And we actually map these out now and we talk to clients about it. So a big part of what we do is, um, and you'll hear this a lot, we talk about normal and predictable, that the business will go through a life cycle of its own and there are normal and predictable challenges the business will go through and even desirable challenges. So the only businesses without challenges are dead businesses and we certainly don't need one of those, right? So what we do is we map out the natural life cycle of the business and we always project, you know, one step ahead in terms of what are they going to bump into. And then the second thing we do is map out the family life cycle and what is normal and predictable. And then we smash those two life cycles together to give a real um, perspective around the context they're operating in. The When you think about that, so there's these normal, predictable things. There's talking with clients and, and seeing how you can almost prepare them for, for what is coming based on the decades of, of experience that you and the team have. Are there particular things that you've seen that end up making the difference between whether tr- someone, well, not an individual, but a family transitions well or whether someone just gets stuck in that place of they're not able, like they can hear what you're saying, but they're not able to kind of transition well? Um, there's the technical answer and an adaptive answer. Uh, the ad- adaptive answer. The adaptive answer revolves around the entrepreneur and how they think, right? Um, and if they think that it's all about them and the business is there and it's designed around them, we have a problem. Uh, the founder, and I'm one of them, very passionate about the business. You think about it eight days a week and 30 hours a day and because I'm thinking it, why aren't my team thinking what I'm thinking, right? So that's a natural thing we have to overcome. And the fact that if everyone thought that way, everyone would have their own business. The reality is founders and entrepreneurs are very different people. So that, that's the first thing we have to appreciate. Um, and founders love um, significance and <laughs> they love um, a degree of certainty and that they control their own destiny. So we've got to be aware of that. And our rule of thumb is if the entrepreneur is still there at 70 and hasn't developed interests outside of the business, it's going to take a while. So the first to second gen transition is the most problematic. So they're, they're some of the adaptive cues we look out for. Um, in terms of some of those patterns, um, we, 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 we always have the first step in our process is to raise awareness, right? To make them feel that it's not mum or dad creating the problems or my siblings, that this is normal and predictable. Um, the first pattern we see around a family business is at some stage, there's got to be a separation of ownership and leadership. In the very early days, ownership and leadership is concentrated in the founder. But at some stage, the business has to scale and you have to introduce people and systems and processes um, beyond the founder. So there's a separation. And just because you're not the leader anymore doesn't mean you can't be the owner. So that's the first thing we see, that natural um, tension between ownership and leadership. And those founders that can think beyond certainty and significance and want to grow the business will realize, okay, I need to get other people involved, but that they struggle with that separation. So what we do is like, okay, that separation's good and it's normal, but it's going to create a void. You can't just abdicate leadership, right? It creates a void. And unless we're clear on our goals and we know what sort of person we're looking for or team we're looking for to grow the business beyond us, 
um, we're going to run into problems and we're going to want to snatch it back because no one can do it as good as us, right? So that's, that's the first pattern we see. Then when more people join the founder, in particular the second generation, there's a need for clarity, right? And just because the founder thinks about it again all day, every day, it's very clear to that person. The strategy is implicit. The next pattern we see is the strategy is going to become explicit. But not only the strategy, but the founders got to express their appetite for risk. And inherently, the founder is managing risk every second. They're in it. Inherently, they know what they're doing. They're making the calls in real time. When they seek to delegate some of that, unless that person has got the authority or clarity or is clear how much, how much risk they're allowed to take, it won't work. And usually businesses grow because success is taking risk and the founder can do that. But when non-family come in, success is avoiding risk. That's the first pattern and the first problem we see. The next pattern we see is we get the second generation in and they will live out mum and dad's dreams for a while. But at some stages, they'll want independence. So they're happy to have interdependence with their siblings and their family. But at some stage, they want independence. And not all siblings will have the same emotional attachment to the business. So if there are different emotional attachments and that some wanting financial independence, that's when businesses or families start to, when tensions appear in second and third gen. And I'm wondering too, because some of what you're describing there feels like it's this distinction as well between things that can be intuitive that we've learnt over time and been able to learn over time because there was that connection between being the owner, being the decision maker, all of the authority and, and aspects connected to that. And then transitioning into the more structured space where there might be formal aspects around how you do need to have the systems and processes that aren't necessarily the strength of, of someone who's that intuitive uh, type of, of business person. Are there struggles that come up in family businesses and business families because in some respects there's been a learn-on-the-job type mentality in that first generation? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, a lot of the tension um, stems from a lack of clarity around the future direction. Um, but the other big thing is, um, and I can speak about this personally, um, as a founder, you just want people to do things. Um, you're the person in control and you're, um, this will come out wrong, but you're barking orders. So you, you, you want to attract people that will do what you say, right? But at some stage, the business, the business can't grow. It, it, it's got to have people that think for themselves. Uh, and often that's where, where people struggle, right, in terms of, yes, it's about getting people in and growing and delegating, but it's that mindset to say the founder will grow a business by barking orders and hiring people who are loyal and will do what they say. But to grow, they can't be, the business can't, can't be designed around that founder anymore. Yes, we need different people, but we need a different mindset. And the founder's got to think it's okay for these people to have their own views and bring their own ideas. Yeah, and I think that there's a, an overlap between some of the critical pieces that you bring and certainly in the work that I do, which comes back to, you use that beautiful word, clarity. The, the need for clarity and 
being able to make explicit the things that were just intuitive and that are trapped in one or two people's minds but that haven't actually been articulated to the group is a difficult thing. There's a, a, a tool that I um, put together that I always used with boards and executives around doing, a, we called it a strategic um, appetite piece. So we were look, like assessing those components of some of what you're talking about there of like what is your appetite on these particular areas and then how do we rank them because it's fascinating getting different either board members or executives to not only say what their appetite is but then to say and this is the top priority you know so some of those pieces I can imagine would be fascinating conversations to be a fly on the wall and and watch the desire to work towards a clearer articulation as you're transitioning but but in any business change is hard even beyond family or private companies I mean Anyone who's driven a change program or tried to drive a change program, um, just because you've thought about it a million times and you do a couple of presentations or a couple of town halls doesn't mean people get it. It's repeat, repeat, repeat. Um, so, again, it's not, it's not something um, that's unique to founders or family businesses or private businesses. Any business and any change program is explicit. Dumb it down. Repeat those key messages over and over again. And then make sure the incentive systems reward that thinking. But yeah, it's 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 clarity. Uh, it's getting other people's perspectives, and not only get their perspectives, but their buy-in. And the way you get their buy-in is to make sure they can get their fingerprints on the plan going forward. Yeah, of course. Uh, and as you say, the plan going forward is great, but also what's my appetite for change, or taking risk, or investing my time, or my money, or my energy into this business going forward. Yeah, one of the the other pieces that I've heard you talk about that I'd love to understand a little bit more is around the socio-emotional wealth, so SEW, and the five different dimensions that that you sort of talk people through related to that. I'm wondering, for, for people who aren't familiar, could you explain to us what that is and how it is a useful tool or something that we should be thinking about as we kind of engage in this type of business. Absolutely. And um, I'll declare starting my life or professional life as an accountant, where it was all about the numbers and it was all financial. This this took a while to get used to, to be honest, but inherently it makes sense. Um, it's really around, um, again, I'm a big believer there's technical answers to things and there's adaptive answers to things. Adaptive answers are in the context of socio-emotional wealth. It's really um, it's that emotional connection, um, that sense of belonging, uh, the sense that I'm part of something bigger and that I'm connected. Uh, often when we work with family or family businesses, we talk about financial goals and non-financial goals. But this whole socio-emotional wealth is really a lead indicator to how successful a family business will be or a business family will be. Um, not only as a business, but more importantly, as a family, right? And often we forget about that. I mean, the founder's all about the business. The second gen's all about the family, which pisses off the founder. Um, but it's, it needs you need to get the balance at some stage. So really, um, that social-emotional wealth really talks about, um, there's an acronym called FIBER, and I'll go through it. But the first um, element is family control and influence. But it goes about the value the family places on having um, 
an impact on the business and control. And often family businesses feel they lose control of a business when non-family members come in. And we often say, well, you know, you own 100% of the shares, you're the only directors, what do you mean you've lost control? And they say, well, they don't do it the way we would have. So to us, it's all about values. It's all about embedding the family's values in the business. So they do business the way we want to do business. So um, the F stands for family control and influence, the first element. The second element is um, identification. So fiber, F-I-B-R-E. So identification with the business. So it's the, it's the value that the family places on being involved in the business. They identify themselves and their family with the business. Um, the B or the third element is binding social ties. And this comes back to feeling connected uh, as a business owner or a family that owns a business, but being connected to staff and suppliers and customers, but that sense of belonging and connection. Um, the fourth element is emotional attachment. And, and this is really important. Um, first gen has emotional attachment to the business in spades. Second gen gets it because it rubs off working with mum or dad in terms of that emotional connection. But by the third gen, that emotional connection to the business can wane. And if they don't feel like they've got control of the business, if they don't identify their own identity with the business, and there's no real connection or emotional involvement, they'll start to disassociate with the business. And if the business is performing well, they'll say, okay, well, I'm happy to be a shareholder with my siblings or my cousins. It's a good investment. But if it's not, they start to question I'm not emotionally engaged with this business. And look, the returns are pretty average. My money's better off somewhere else. That's the first, first breaking point. Uh, so that, that's critically important. And then the last one is um, renewal. You know, how do we keep renewing our relationships? But all of these non-financial, intangible goals are what keep families together and what keeps families connected to the business. Um, it goes back to answering those two questions I asked. How's the business better off by being owned by the family? And how's the family better off by owning this business or these businesses together? If they can't see that, the engagement, their appetite for investment or reinvestment in the business wanes, and therefore the business is more likely to underperform or be sold in the long term. And I'm wondering, so when I think of those five dimensions, with the be around belonging and, and you mentioned some of the broader stakeholders that the family is starting to take into account, whether that's suppliers or employees. I'd love to know where some of the conversations or what movement you're seeing around an expansion of our concept of what the role of business is. So you know me, so no, no surprises there that no, no, um, absolutely. some of the pieces that I would say are a natural place for a family business or a business family once they transition to actually shine and have a competitive advantage is because of their deep connections, whether that's in a community, whether that's with the types of long-term relationships they have with suppliers. There's a whole range of things that mean there can be a much longer time frame or horizon that they work within. So I'd love to just unpack that a little bit in terms of that sense that, you know, we're seeing internationally this shift that we we no longer are just accepting that the, 
maximization of shareholder value is the only role of a business. So what are you seeing with the the family businesses that you're working with in that space? Yeah, I mean, I've just scribbled down some notes because a million things come to mind. Um, And I think it is a shared passion of ours. And if you have a business, uh, it's a great leverage point to do good, right? Uh, There's more than one way. There's lots of ways of doing good by owning a business, which is great. Um, We're seeing this conversation as a way of engaging the next gen with the business in terms of the relationship they want to have with the business. Um, and there's one client that we've worked with. Um, the business is in a very unsexy industry um, without giving too much away. Um, they basically grow protein, slaughter protein, and sell it, right? And the family, the third and fourth gen, saying, look, we don't really think this is us. This really doesn't sit well with us. But when we have the conversation around feeding people, and driving down the average cost of protein and making protein more accessible to more people, they lean in. And it's not sugarcoating it, but it's just saying, okay, what is the good we're doing here? So this whole conversation is um, is becoming a really important and powerful way of engaging the next gen in the business because it's the relationship they want and they can see that's how they have an impact. Um, so that that's, that's the... Um, that's the important view. Yeah, of uh, that example. The cold, hard investor perspective is, are you doing good? But it's just, um, it's just a more efficient way of using scarce and expensive resources. So you can hold both points of view. The first point of view is, you know, business has been good to us. Actually, we've always done well. You know, I... Um, I sat in the lobby of a client before a shareholder meeting last Tuesday afternoon, and I was reading their history for the last um, last seventy years. And I did a book, uh, and it was a little bit about the family, but a lot about their staff. And you read this, and three quarters of the book was around immigrants, where their first job was with the client, and how they came out, and they didn't know the language, but they wanted an opportunity. Now, when when this business employs a thousand people and three quarters were immigrants. Imagine the impact that's had on families and community, right? So that's, that, that's the doing good bit. The cold, hard shareholder view is, let's just get more out of the limited resource we have. So again, it's a very powerful conversation. It's working its way into values. It's working its way into family constitutions and the guidelines of how we operate and behave as a family. And it's certainly working its way into shareholder goals. Yeah, I like, I mean, they're great examples that you've given. And I think one of the pieces that certainly I'm trying to instill with the leaders that I'm working with is that if we can be a little bit less purist and a little bit more pragmatic, you can actually work with that piece that you just spoke about of a different particular family member in this case may have a a motivation that is more about how does this just stack up in terms of us reducing the cost of our actual production and someone else might be driven by, I want to actually feel like this is about food security. or you, So the, the motivators, actually, it's fine that they are different. And I think one of the pieces that we all need to 
get better at in these conversations is to stop fighting over how do I make sure everyone believes what I believe and instead go, what's the shared outcome we're trying to get to here? And if your motivations are different to mine, that's fine, but we have to create that win-win. And I think when we do that in businesses, that's when we're going to see this uh, approach and a more nuanced sense of the role of business will speed up then because people won't feel defensive or like they're being told that profit's bad or that they need to give more away, but they'll instead have done the exact pieces you just spoke about of looking at the actual activities that they are already doing and connecting more intentionally to that impact. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, it comes back to fibre and having people engaged and emotionally attached to the business. Um, yeah. And you touched on a really good point around the win-win. Um, one, of our, one of the key differentiators uh, in terms of the work we do with um, families and business families is making sure there's alignment on what they want for and from the business. And a lot of that's around just holding a space, like an independent person holding a space for a conversation around what's important to you and why. Uh, and it's great that they're all different. If they're all the same, it'd be pretty boring, actually. <laughs> but alignment and your win-win is critical. Yeah. As we wrap up the, the conversation, Dom, I'm wondering if you could only leave people with one idea at the end of this podcast, what would it be? What would you like people to walk away focused on? Um, that everything that a business goes through and a family goes through is normal and predictable. And there are millions of families and businesses that have gone through this before you. Uh, success leaves clues. So why not learn from the really successful people? Understand what normal and predictable is going to be as a family and in a business and solve for continued success and look for bigger and bigger challenges to solve. So normal and predictable is what I'd leave everyone with. I love it. And if people want to learn some more about you and your work, what's the best way for them to find out more? Um, our website. So www.lineage.group. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time today, Dom. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been great. Thank you, Bessie. Thank you for taking the time to listen to both success and integrity with Bessie Graham. If you found what I shared today valuable or you think that it would be good for a fellow business leader to listen to, then please share the episode with someone you know. Another way to help the podcast is to provide a rating and written review on your podcast app of choice. The written review is important because it helps others learn more about what we're trying to achieve. If you'd like to get in touch, please reach out to me at any time on LinkedIn, YouTube or Instagram just by searching Bessie Graham or you can go to BessieGraham.com. I'm Bessie Graham and remember, you don't have to choose between experiencing success or having integrity in your life.